doing it. Hi, hello, and welcome to an end-of-the-year Macho Movie Man podcast special. My top 20 films of 2021. Why is it a top 20? Because it's been a shit year, and there was a lot of movies that I really wanted to put on a top te- my top 10, but they didn't make it, and I was like, there's about enough here to make a top 20 and i just like shouting out really good films that i really like so here we are and in fact there was even more than 20 movies that were in the conversation so i'm going to have to do an honorable mention but first i would just uh, like to take a moment to say hope everyone had a very happy christmas i hope everyone enjoyed our christmas movie reviews i hope uh I hope you all uh, have recovered from myself, Dean and Brennan talking about Santa Claus 3. That was one of the most fun episodes I think we've ever done, if not the most fun. Um, It was also the weirdest and most demented and strangest. So um, if you guys liked the three-person setup for that episode, do get in touch and say so because then we can start hopefully trying to get more of them kinds of episodes done but um yeah so just to give you a heads up uh, about what the plan is for the next couple weeks I have an idea in my head for what the first proper episode will be but that will be in mid-January I need to contact a certain individual about whether they'll be They'd be up for doing that episode that week. It'll be, it, it, it will fit with what's coming out in mid-January. I won't give away spoilers, but um, that episode could potentially be a scream. Uh, uh, but until then, we have this episode, which shall be air, going up late on New Year's Eve. On, yeah, New Year's Eve, which is today when I'm recording this. And basically, uh, I'm wait. I'm going to hold off on publishing this and setting, bringing it up until I've finished typing up my uh, multi-part list on Instagram. So they kind of they come out at the same time, so you can read about what I want to say about the movies, but you can also then hear what I want to say about them off the cuff without any form of restriction on how much I can talk about something which is part of the reason why I started this podcast to begin with I I enjoy I enjoy reviewing things on Instagram it allows me it makes me need to be concise about what I say but sometimes I just do like to shoot from the hip and talk about movies and know that I don't have to stay within a, a word count but yeah, so that'll be today, and next week will be a very fun episode, even more fun, will be my top 10 worst films of the year. Uh, that's going to be very shouty, that's going to uh, that's going to be funny, hopefully. Those are always very funny uh, lists to write, so I God knows what it'll be like when I have to verbally speak those lists. But um... Yeah, so that'll be next week, and then mid-January is when we'll start getting back into proper episodes. But um, 
without further ado, uh, let us start. And just before we start, I just want to quickly point out, these are all subjective. Um, if you're not a fan of a movie that I mention, or if you think something should be higher up on the list, that's fine. That's more than okay. Everyone's entitled to their opinions, but this is my list. I will put on my list what I want to put on. And um, if you don't agree with that, then all power to you. But again, it's my list. I'll put on put on it what I want, and I'll explain why it's on here. But um, all's fair in all's fair in love and movie lists. And um, I'd love to get a conversation going if anyone wants that about whatever film I put on the list. But yeah, that that went a bit longer than I. Th- needed it to be but yeah let's get in first with honorable mentions let me just bring up the list here uh first off in our honorable mentions hating peter thatchell this was a netflix documentary that dropped on netflix in i'd say it might have been may um it's about peter thatchell who well is one of the most famous, outspoken and divisive gay rights activists in uh, British history. Uh, He was divisive and controversial because his style of activism and protests was very stunt orientated. You know, he'd be he'd be the kind of protester to break into Gloucester Cathedral during a sermon on Christmas Day or whatever with a bullhorn and start giving out guff about uh, the priests hating uh, homosexuals and whatnot. Um, He'd go to the middle of uh, Red Square in Moscow and protest gay rights, protest abuses and uh, whatever the nasty shit going on with gays in Russia is uh, and yeah so he'd always put his life on the line for it and some of his methods they go into it in the documentary while it does celebrate the good that he did and like what he did and why he did it and it goes to the heart of you know him as a person while it doesn't sugarcoat him, it doesn't put a halo over his head, it does call him out on the fact that some of his methods were kind of nasty and not entirely necessary. You know, like he he did some things that are very questionable. Like he outed uh closeted priests and bishops and you know, even people on the same side as him in the documentary will say, I didn't agree with that. You know, sometimes he was just not a help. He was a hindrance and whatnot. So it's not a documentary that uh, canonizes Peter Thatchell, but it does give us an interesting and on the whole, a positive look at him. But it doesn't shy away from some of the negative aspects of him. And that's what a good documentary should do. It's what Hating Peter Thatchell did do. It was a very enlightening viewing experience. I'm, I'd am i be very happy to watch the documentary again. It was probably the best documentary I saw on Netflix this year. So that's why it's an honourable mention. Um, Another honourable mention would be the movie Rams. Rams, a remake of, I believe it was a Swedish film. 
uh, a Swedish, it was either Swedish, Norwegian, Icelandic, definitely a cold Northern European country. Definitely that. Um, and it's about sheep. But uh, while the original version uh, was set in an Arctic Circle country, this is actually set in Southern Australia. And it stars Dr. Alan Grant himself, Sam Neill, as a sheep farmer uh, who has a very strained relationship with his brother, who was also a sheep farmer. Uh, they haven't spoken in about 30 years, despite the fact that they live next door to one another. And their lives are put into a tailspin when, in their local community that thrives on sheep farming, uh, there's an outbreak of sheep disease that causes them to not only have to put down their sheep, but also means they can't farm sheep, they can't... You know, they, they can't do their livelihood now for, you know, at least a year until things settle down. It's very much kind of working class versus sort of scientist and big government agencies and whatnot. Um, and it's a lovely little film, uh, very much about loneliness, isolation, the sort of emotional walls that can be put up around older people as time goes on. It's about community. It's about, like I said, it's about lonely people. Like these two brothers are very lonely. Uh, and all the time, it never, it never loses a comedic charm to it, you know? Like at one point, Sam Neill's character to get around the loss of his sheep is he pretend he secretly herds and farms and looks after sheep in his house. So this entire sequence is where uh, Sam Neill is just trying to hide the fact that he has sheep in his bathroom. And uh, it's just it's it's a really funny movie, but it's still a drama. And at times it can really ramp up the drama very well and you know it's just a it's just a nice movie you know it was a movie that came out earlier in the year that sort of won me over and I'm very glad that I can still have it in an honorable mention spot uh another honorable mention is Encanto the most recent Disney animated film uh, I believe it's their 60th animated film in their history um, it's set in Colombia, uh, and it's about a magical family of people with, uh, superpowers, basically, or magical gifts, and it centers around the one family member who doesn't have a gift, and how she has to save the magic that gives the, her family members the gift, the gifts they have as it starts to fade, and it's definitely a modern Disney film, like there's no villain, you know, a lot of the conflicts are simply emotional conflicts surrounding the characters, you know, it's it's become, Disney are becoming a little bit less black and white about things in terms of their storytelling, and I'm all for this because Encanto's flippin' brilliant. The songs are great. I have no idea how Lin-Manuel Miranda gets as many things done as he 
does you know like he's directed a film this year he's starred in movies he's written songs for two animated films he is probably the hardest working man in hollywood in 2021 and his songs here are great you know it's a it's it's a great exploration into the microaggressions of families and potentially slightly toxic family setups even though they may not realize it's toxic it's a lot of it's a lot of family stuff that I think will resonate with people you know like the whole sense of struggling to keep up with family expectations and family traditions and you know you're wanting to please family members even when you can't realistically do that I just think it's a going to be a great movie for kids to experience. It's going to teach them a lot of lessons. It's one of those it'll be one of those movies where kids will watch it at a certain age and then they'll rewatch it again when they're older and they'll find and they'll get the things that it's trying to tell you that you got to an extent as kids, but then when you're older it really does hit you even more. Uh I think it's I think it's a Disney classic in the making to be honest. Definitely check out Encanto. It's gorgeous, it's vibrant. It it might be the most colorful movie Disney have ever done. It is insanely good and it's a and it's a testament to how good some of the animated films this year have been when Encanto is only an honorable mention because in a year of lesser animated films this would have made the top 20. Uh Zola is another honorable mention this is what can only be described as a florida people fairy tale it's a road trip movie gone wrong that turns into a crime story and it's all based on a legit twitter thread of a real life story that you know the that the main character zola is just like you'll never believe what happened to me this one weird ass weekend that i went down to florida um it's a sensory overload of a movie. Like it's a like I said, it's a movie based off a Twitter thread, and they somehow managed to make it feel that way, but in a way that's like not unbearable. It's just it's an assault on your senses. You can you can hear, you can see, you can, you know, you can feel this movie as it's happening. It's it's an experience in itself. Um, it's it's a Scorsese movie on bath salts. It's fantastically well shot. Um, the cinematography is beautiful. The performances are great. Riley Keough, uh, I do think should be nominated for Best Supporting Actress because she gives as close to a blackface performance as you can get in modern day without wearing makeup. Like, she's not in blackface, but, like, she plays a character who is white who is so desperate to be black that she just acts so inappropriately and you know it's phenomenal and it's a great movie uh, a lot of more people should see it as i said even if it's just for the slightly comedic element of yeah this is a bizarre fucked up road trip movie and it's all set in Florida and it's stirring so many sort of cliche Florida people. And yeah, it's a Florida man fable and definitely check out Zola.
because it's fantastic. Um, what more do we have in the way of honorable mentions? Um, the last duel, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, it gets it starts off slow and it gets much much better. Like it starts off, it's a Rashomon style three perspectives on the same story type structure. Um, it opens with Matt Damon's character's uh, perspective and that's the least interesting. So like once you get through that first third of the movie, everything gets better. It's set in, I think, 14th century France. It's about uh, two knights who uh, begin as friends but then they fall out as one rises in political power and eventually it all descends into madness when one accuses the other of of uh, raping his wife um and while on paper it does sound uh, a bit off base and potentially a bit yikes seeing uh when you look on paper oh Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are going to do a movie about uh, sexual assault on women when you say it like that, it does sound like something that can be a bit yikes, but it's very well handled. They brought on female writers to specifically keep it from coming off as uh, a man's view on a very sensitive women's issue. Um, uh, Ridley Scott does a really good job directing it, even if he does blame this movie's a financial failure on millennials for some reason. Um, it's really well acted. When it gets to Jodie Comer's perspective, the movie goes into an entirely different level. It is phenomenal in the last third. Uh, also, it's just a great movie if you want to watch practical sets and practical props used uh, frequently in a movie in 2021 and used well and they look great. You know, it's a movie that they don't really make anymore. And you can kind of tell why, because it didn't do well at the box office. But it's a great movie. Check it out. It's on Disney Plus now, on, like, Star. But, um, yeah, it's a movie that deserves a watch. It's great. The acting is really solid. Jodie Comer should be nominated for Best Actress. Um, and, yeah, it's just a really... It's an entertaining movie. It can be a bit rough at times, especially with the subject matter. But, uh push through give it a watch i would i would recommend it um what else do we got here again just checking the list uh cowboys uh which i do think is a better queer modern western than the power of the dog uh fight me uh it's a really tender small down to earth um uh, Cow, uh, western about a troubled man you know he's a dad he wants to do well for his child um but he has he has emotional issues he has mental health issues he takes a lot of medication um his son comes out as trans uh and so and the the child's mother is not accepting of this at all so, and obviously the father and mother are separated after he sp he goes to jail for a little while, um. But 
the child and the father have a very good relationship and they run away together. They go on the run from the law and from the the mother. And so, yeah, this is basically a cowboys on the run from the law movie that is also a very tender father and son movie uh, that has a lgbtq lens through it insofar as you know it's a movie about a trans kid and it's really good steve zahn who was always an one of those actors that's in movies but you never really you know he's the definition of a character actor you know he never he doesn't always get like great things to work with but when he gets a really good part he can be really good and this is the performance of his career as far as I'm concerned it's fantastic and you know honestly it is it's just nice to see a movie about a trans kid where the caring and understanding parent is the father because that rarely happens you know I've seen movies like this about you know you know, queer kids and trans kids and whatnot. And it is a cliche at this point where, like, the dad does not agree or the dad does not accept, you know? And because it's just easier to do that because also if you don't do that when it's the mother, there is that sort of dicey question of, you know, going against the sense of, oh, well, a mother should should be accepted because that's that's a mother thing um you know it's it's just it's e always easier to do the father but in this case it doesn't take the easy route it goes the route of the mother and um while it is a wholesome movie in the end it's a really interesting look at people's perspectives of masculinity because for the child her dad is the symbol of masculinity that they want but in reality he's not this macho man you know like yes he loves cowboys you know he want you know he he always acts like he's a cowboy you know he's one of those southern southern guys um he isn't ma super masculine though because he has all these emotional issues and the child doesn't see that until later on in the movie and yeah so it's just a very interesting look at what defines masculinity what is masculinity in a sense so like it's a i i'm making it sound like hoity-toity but like it's a very fun not fun but like it's a lovely down-to-earth little movie really recommend it's called cowboys you can find it online and to round off just the honourable mentions, uh, The Suicide Squad, because any movie that manages to wash away the stink of that 2016 version, as, w as well as this movie does, deserves an honourable mention. This film was just a really fun time, really funny. John Cena was great in it. Sylvester Stallone steals the show as a giant talking shark. I cannot believe I am saying that sentence in any year, let alone 2021. But The Suicide Squad, it's one of the most enjoyable DC movies I think they've ever done. Um, I can't wait to go back and watch it again. It's just a really fun time that really 
it gave us what we wanted in 2016 and that was just a fun r-rated uh irreverent vulgar fun comedy action movie starring the suicide squad and it turns out we had to wait five years for but we finally got it we finally got what we wanted all those years ago and that was just dc saying fuck it let's give us a weird director a lot of money let let's drop these characters in the plot from an arnold movie from the mid 80s and just let them have fun be weird redeem a fair a fair few characters from the first film specifically rick flag let's introduce characters that people will actually give a shit about that people will enjoy and yeah this was dc with a big hit and i hope dc do more movies like this uh because it was great uh so let's actually get into the top 20 now at number 20 is the best documentary of the year as far as i'm concerned and that would be the sparks brothers which is edgar wright's first time directing a documentary it's about the musical duo of sparks who will you that's a name you will hear again later on in the list as along with edgar wright you'll be seeing him as well um sparks are a duo that have been around for literal years they have been around forever they've been around since i think the 60s maybe 60s 70s and their style is always changing it's always evolving like no two albums will ever sound the same sort of genre wise or aesthetic wise and yeah and they're this just this mysterious brother duo that no one can really pinpoint what their deal is i think it's said in the documentary sparks are a duo you can look up and you can read every word of their wikipedia page and you still wouldn't know who these guys are and this film manages to maintain that sense of mystery around these guys but it does show you who they are not so much why their brains work the way they do but it does celebrate them and it celebrates the career they've had because it's been an up and down career for them you know they'll have a successful album and then the next one will be a flop but they keep reinventing themselves. They keep coming back. You know, they've released like 25 albums, which is a lot. And yeah, and it's just a lovely tribute to them. It it shows like who they are, but it doesn't but it doesn't tell you what their deal is, and I love that. And I this movie, it's vibrant, it's really well made. You know, there's entire sequences that are animated you know it's it's, a, it's just a visually delightful movie because sparks are weird so this documentary had to be weird to uh, match them and it does as best as it can and it's just you know i'll watch this back and there'll just be sequences that i can just enjoy because like it goes into stop motion animation it goes into claymation it goes off on all these wonderful tangents visually and yeah cannot recommend it enough especially if you're into musical documentaries uh so yes the sparks brothers the best documentary of the year 
At number 19, maybe the best video game movie ever made, Werewolves Within. Which is essentially what would happen if you took Knives Out, The Thing and an Agatha Christie novel, mushed them all together and then you throw in a werewolf. It's about a town that gets hit by a blizzard and a bunch of locals get stuck in the local lodge, snowed in. And they get one by one offed by a werewolf. And the only person who can save them is the new uh, woodland sheriff. You know, the the park ranger, basically, who's just come to town. And it's a film that manages to be fun, knows what it is, knows what it wants to do, owns itself, does what it wants to do. And all the while manages to fit in the right amount of social commentary. Like I said, this is very knives out insofar as you get to see a lot of assholes interacting with each other and you can kind of see why these people are assholes, you know, what effect their behaviour has on other people, how it brings out the nastiness in other people. And yeah, like it's just a really fun movie. You know, it's a fun movie with a nice little mystery to it. Although, I feel like if I was to rewatch it one more time, uh, the mystery would be a little bit easier to cop uh, a second or third time round. But it's still, it's a really fun movie that I would highly recommend. It's based on a VR game, which is really weird how, like, the best video game movie could potentially uh, come from, like, such a weird kind of niche area of gaming uh co-figure but yeah i'd highly recommend it even it's just it's ultimately just a story about how you know sometimes it's important to be nice to people and how being nice is not a bad thing because being nice to people will get you not eaten by a werewolf um but yeah so like uh werewolves within definitely recommend Okay, what do we got? Number 18 is Spencer. Spencer, the Princess Diana movie starring Kristen Stewart, which when it was announced and when they announced Kristen Stewart was playing Princess Diana, a lot of people were skeptical, but I'm very happy to announce that Kristen Stewart proved every single person wrong. She is amazing in this movie. I fully, ex- I fully expect her to win Best Actress for this performance, she is dynamite in this movie. And this movie is also the most visually lush uh, psychological horror movie you're ever going to see in your life. It's from Pablo Lorraine, who did uh, Jackie a couple of years ago with Natalie Portman. So he has a... He has very much a niche type of movie. Oh, I wouldn't say niche, actually, but, like, he has a comfort spot. He has a sweet spot, and that is... Uh, period dramas about tortured female figures. This definitely fits into that. And another thing with his movies is they all look gorgeous from a visual standpoint, from a production standpoint. This is set in Christmas of 1991, I think. It's early 90s. It's tail end of... uh, Diana and Charles's marriage. Diana is a mother. She's struggling. She's she has to go and spend Christmas at Sandringham with the Royals, and it's very much a psychological horror movie about a woman trapped in a suffocating environment, 
where there's a lot of people out to get her in mind fucky ways. You know, like there's a huge, like there's a lot sort of uh, touched upon with how, you know, all these outfits are just lined up for her and like they're all labeled, you have to wear this on this day at this time for this thing. And if she doesn't wear it, she gets in trouble. You know, it's it's just this incredibly stuffy, suffocating, uh, toxic, dangerous surroundings where she doesn't feel safe. She does not feel welcome. And yeah, it's psychological warfare against her. All the while she's trying to find her strength, uh, her, you know, her strength to go on and so on and so forth and I know some people have been critical of this movie for not being entirely historically accurate but it's a movie that never claims to be historically accurate it opens with the heading a a fable from a true tragedy so from the off it tells you I am not interested in being you know a history class on what happened with Diana at this time. I want to explore the psychological elements of that situation, that element of what is ultimately a tragedy, what happened with Diana. But, you know, it's it wants to be a psychological evaluate, a psychological study of a character in this situation. And yeah, and like I said, it's gorgeous this movie has the best sweater game since knives out it's a movie that makes food look delicious it's a movie that just feel it feels like a movie that was made in 1991 in the best possible way it's gorgeous Kristen Stewart is amazing it's a quiet slow kind of film won't be for everyone but if you think it's your cup of tea I would definitely recommend Spencer uh, number 17, we've got West Side Story, a, a latecomer to this list, but a, a very worthy member of the list. Uh, West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg, his first ever musical, 50 years into his career, and he's still finding new genres to do, like a boss. And obviously this is a remake of the 1961 Best Picture winner, uh, and we've had remakes of Best Picture winners before, and they haven't always been good. I have a real soft spot for the mid-2000s Around the World in 80 Days remake, but, you know, compared to the Best Picture winner, you know, that's not, it's not up to much. And then, obviously, you have films like Ben-Hur from a couple of years ago, the remake in 2016, which was dog shit. But, uh, yeah, so... Does it's an up and down track record with best picture winner remakes. Uh this is by far the best one I've ever seen. Uh not only does it honor the original by being okay enough not to like negatively affect like the legacy of it, this is more than good enough to stand on its own beside the original and just on its own as a movie. Like if you hadn't seen the 1961 version you wouldn't re- you wouldn't you wouldn't have the same experience as you do if you've seen both but like if you hadn't seen the 1961 version this is still a great movie 
uh, you know, it takes all, it takes the themes of what made the first one special, you know, that sense of, you know, commute of, uh, gang violence, the dangers of gang violence, the consequences of it, and it really, and it mixes in modern themes that we're still feeling to this day, you know, the racial tensions of it, that the first, that the original kind of underplays this film, uh, tackles that on more directly, uh, gentrification, because again, you know, in this world, you know, the the sharks and the jets are fighting over territory while the city around them is just changing and, you know, new people are coming in and whatnot, you know, very much like how In the Heights deals with that, this also deals with that in its own way, um, uh, so it takes those themes and adds them into what was already great about the first film, it doesn't change a lot of things, it, you know, adapts them into a more modern lens, more modern, modern filter, uh, sorry, and, uh, yeah, basically, and, while, it, and again, it doesn't change any of the songs, it changes some of the songs around in terms of when they happen in the story, and I think in some cases that really actually does benefit the movie, uh, and, yeah, and then obviously, the performances in this movie are incredible. Let's forget about the elephant in the room that is Ansel Elgort. Um, this movie has gives birth to more stars than the Big Bang. You know, Rachel Zegler, look out for that name. Remember that name. She is a f- fucking star in this movie. Uh, she plays Maria. Obviously, you guys know the plot of West Side Story. It's Romeo and Juliet with um, with street gangs in New York. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so Rachel Zegler plays, uh, Maria, she's fantastic, Ariana Du Bois plays, uh, Anita, which in the original was played by Rita Marino. it won Rita Marino her Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, to this day the only Latino actor to ever win an Oscar, and the only female Latino, Latina actress to ever win an Oscar, uh, so basically, Ariana Du Bois has to step into an iconic role, not only just in terms of movie musicals in general. Like she is the lead singer on "In America," which is the most iconic song from this movie, from the original. You also had the fact that this role meant so much to a lot of people. You know, it meant a lot to Latino actors in general and history and whatnot. So like there's so much about this character and she walks in and she just owns this role. And it's especially difficult because in certain scenes she's acting against Rita Marino, who's in this movie as um this film's version of Doc from the first film. She plays the shopkeeper and she's marvellous. The screen lights up every time she's on. And again, this is a movie I could rave about in terms of visuals, uh, how the movie looks, how the choreography is done so well, musical sequences are so well put together. I just feel like Spielberg in the last 10, 15 years has sometimes struggled with sort of 
adapting his signature style to modern films. But I feel like he's found a genre in musicals where what he brings to the table, his trademark sense of whimsy, fits the musical genre so well. Even by today's, even in today's world, it just fits it really well. So I'd like to see Spielberg do more musicals. I'd like to see him do whatever he wants. He is a master. This is him reminding us that, yes, I have been in the game 50 goddamn years, but I'm still a master. I am still an all-time great, and this movie is just him casually reminding us that he is a boss. Okay, number 16 is a little Irish movie called Herself, which is a down-to-earth, uh, serious, somber, but also feel-good drama about a struggling mother who has recently escaped from an abusive relationship. She's suffered domestic abuse. Uh, the entire movie, she's struggling with the fact that um she has a fucked-up wrist because of... Uh, a very brutal opening scene that depicts her being abused in the home. Uh, this is not an easy movie to watch at times, but on the whole, it is one of the more feel, one of the more sort of emotionally feel good movies of the year because it's about an ordinary person's struggle. Uh, to regain control of their life and a sense of power and to slowly but surely move out of that sense of victimhood. You know, uh, Claire Dunn, who I can't remember where I've seen her before. I think this might have been my first time seeing her in anything. She is a revelation in this movie. She should get awards consideration. Her performance is amazing. She carries so much of this movie and this movie just has a good heart to it. Yes, it deals with a lot of difficult subject matter. It can get rough at times. It can get emotionally draining. It can break your heart at times. But what the core of the movie is about is survival and bonds of love and friendship made through the people who gather around you to help you through the hard times. You know, like a lot of this movie is watching people come together and create a sense of community as this woman tries to build her own house. You know, this is a movie that makes literal like construction work into, you know, emotionally investing storytelling. And that is very impressive in my books. Um, yeah, it's a great movie. I would absolutely recommend it. It's on Amazon, I think, for you to watch. Again, really recommend it. I'll, you'll be seeing this on Aussie on like a Wednesday night at some point in the future. Uh, again, really do think you should go out and see it. It's a great movie. It's a down-to-earth human drama in a year where, you know, we have a lot of dramas that feel sort of big and epic. This is like the right kind of down-to-earth um, so herself is number 16. Uh, number 15, we have Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, he's back. He's directing this one. This is his first ever directorial feature. And 
this has one of the best male performances honestly of this year and i think maybe of like the last 10 years or the next 10 years this movie is just andrew garfield coming in shitting on it pissing on it eating it all up doing literally every single thing and winning at everything in this movie he is just mind-blowingly good this is a movie that i think will get him a best actor nomination uh, i don't know if he's going to win it's a crowded field this year but he is a front runner he plays uh jonathan larson who was the guy who created the mu musical rent this isn't about the creation of the musical rent this is set a few years before he writes that musical uh, a few years before his untimely death and it's basically about a guy who's about to turn 30 who is having a big sort of existential crisis about uh, leaving his 20s and entering his 30s and where he is in life and he's trying desperately to get his uh, first musical made and how his desire and his drive is starting to maybe push away people in his life who are moving in different directions and yeah like this movie it's a lot and the musical numbers are amazing and how it ties into the structure of how the narrative is being told through like him doing a one-man show of her and that's how he narrates the events because all of what happens in this movie leads to him doing a one-person show called tick tick boom which eventually gets him noticed and how he starts to eventually get to doing rent and unfortunately he never actually got to see rent he died just before the uh, first performance of it but um yeah and it's just i mean as someone who i'm 24 you know in the back of my mind i'm 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 a bit scared about the fact that by this time next year i will be 25 that kind of scares me so i can really relate to the story of essentially someone being terrified of turning 30 because obviously if you're in your 50s or 60s or anything uh, you can kind of look at that and scoff a little bit, being like, oh, he's only turning 30. But if you're in that situation, that is kind of freaky that you're turning that old. And especially if you're in 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 a field in the world where, like, it can be hard and you it really is like a lightning in a bottle moment or just one spark that can come whenever, you know, like it's it's not concrete or anything and... You know, and I just think Andrew Garfield does such a good job at portraying that sense of it and that sense of desperation. Where, like, he just wants he just wants to do what he loves, basically. And yeah, this movie is absolutely a love letter to theater kids done by a theater kid done good in Lin Manuel Miranda who had no business doing such a good job at directing his first film as he does here. Um, what else? Um, shout out to Robin de, Robin de Jesus. I have, I have no doubt I'm mispronouncing his name, but um, he is great. He should be in consideration for Best Supporting Actor. He plays uh, Jonathan's best friend, Michael, who is kind of like his conscience, his Jiminy Cricket to an extent. 
Um, uh, he's great. He I first saw him in the Boys in the Band remake that came out last year. He was great in that. He's great here. I uh, look forward to seeing what he does in the future. Um, but yeah, and then again, I, I know I've gushed about Andrew Garfield so much in this entry, but yeah, Andrew Garfield, again, just reminding everyone, especially at the moment, that he is one of the best actors in Hollywood who does not get as much good work as he deserves. And um, yeah, I had no idea he could sing. I had no idea he could do a performance like this, but he does and he nails it. So like, I'm very happy to have Tick, Tick, Boom on this list. Um, number 14, No Time to Die. Anyone who knows me, anyone who follows my Instagram knows that, um, I'm a big James Bond fan. So I waited an entire 18 months. I waited an entire pandemic to see No Time to Die. The fact that it did not disappoint should be enough to get at least an honorable mention in my book because... There was so much... There was a part of me that was really terrified that it was going to be bad. But it wasn't. So, like, the fact that it didn't suck and that it lived up to the expectations that I had for it from, like, 18 months of just thinking about this and wanting it to be good and worrying, oh, God, why it's not good or whatnot. Um, but also, why is it this high up on the list? Because it managed to give Daniel Craig something that no other Bond has ever gotten a fitting, appropriate, worthy farewell to the role. A proper good send-off. No Bond has had that. The only Bonds who have had anything close to that are the ones who kind of leave the series when, like, the there's, we're not sure, like, when the next movie's coming out. Timothy, Dal- Timothy Dalton left uh, after... Uh, license to kill, because you know MGM was in finance in the financial shitter. They they didn't know what the future of the series was. He left. Um, Lazenby maybe, but again, neither of those films were, uh, criti- as critically well received as I think they should have been. Uh, but yeah, so like this was just like a proper, good farewell, a closing of the chapter, the end of the book for Daniel Craig as James Bond. A, honestly, a beautiful send-off that really celebrated what his films have been, you know? Like, what the Daniel Craig era was, this is a great... This is as good an ending to that era as we could have gotten, in my opinion. It's not perfect, it's a little bit long. Rami Malek is not the best villain. But, yeah, like, this movie made me emotional, this movie felt like a good ending, you know? This movie made me happy that we got to experience Daniel Craig's error, you know? Because he's my Bond. While I often say Pierce Brosnan is my favourite Bond, I ha- I will always have a spot in my heart for Daniel Craig as James Bond because that's who I've had in the role for most of my life. And yeah, and so seeing him go go and bow out and in such a pr- good fashion, it's great, you know? And I'm just very, I was, this movie lived up to my expectations. It was pure, great 
Bond escapist cinema. And that's what Bond should be. Beyond being, you know, a gritty spy film for whatever era or goofy over-the-top 90s movie or whatever, you know, weird Roger Moore thing they were doing in the 80s, Bond should always have a sense of escapism to it. You know, that sense of goodies versus baddies, classic action cinema escapism that, that you know, Connery had, that Moore had, this uh, Dalton kind of had, although he was a bit, he was, he was, he was the original Daniel Craig's Bond. You know, this, I felt, was one of the better attempts at making escapism out of Daniel Craig's films while not entirely forgetting that the Daniel Craig's era was great because it was able to mesh seriousness and escapism together because sometimes the balance was off this time the balance was just perfect and again I'm just this movie made me happy it was an event for me and it didn't disappoint and that is enough to get it a very good ranking on this list uh all right number 13 is the french dispatch which it might be the most wes anderson movie that has ever existed uh it is an anthology film which is a little bit different for anderson he usually only he, he doesn't do anthology he's never done a film like that before so this is a first it might be his most star-studded cast ever um i could i could list off the people who are in this but uh, i only have about seven minutes left before this part of the recording uh cops out on me uh so i'm not going to do that but all the usual anderson favorites are here a few new new players a few uh people who may become regulars now that they've worked with him a couple times uh but yeah so it is three stories that are all make up articles in an edition of a american european travel european culture magazine you know like it's a i can't remember what they call it in this movie but it's a magazine that covers you know european uh news culture foods the arts and whatnot yeah it's one of them fancy magazines uh but yeah and this is just so wes anderson from everything from the camera tricks to the sense of humor the aesthetics the color palette everything that is the signature wes anderson style that we've come to know and love it's here and there's so much of it happening like this is wes anderson just getting into his most comfortable spot in his comfortable zone of his comfort zone and just making the movie exactly the way he wants it not compromising on anything so within his wheelhouse you know it's not his best film it's not his best film but it's maybe his most film you know like it is him what he loves to do in movies it's him he's just having the crack with this movie he is having fun in his comfort zone making this movie with his friends with 
a lot of his frequent collaborators, a lot of great performances. Um, Jeffrey Rice, he's great in this movie. Um, I like Timothy Chalamet in this movie. Obviously, Bill Murray's great whenever he's on screen. He's not in it for a lot of the movie, but um, I'll always love whatever Bill Murray does in a Wes Anderson film. Um, yeah, like again, you know, there's there's uh, this was a toss up between this and the number twelve film for like which is higher. This I put down lower because it is, you know, again, while I said I love seeing Anderson do what he does because there's no one else in Hollywood who can do what he does. Um, you know, this is, you know, if you want to, if you want to do pros and cons, this is a lot, this is all the things we've seen Anderson do before and it's done really well, but it's all stuff we've seen before, but I still really enjoyed it and it's a movie that I think I'm going to enjoy even more when I've had multiple rewatches because there's so much happening in this movie you know it's split into three sections I will say this I think it kind of peaks maybe in the middle uh the first two store element uh segments are like great and then the third one is good but like it's not as good I think is especially the middle chapter but um yeah so like it'll get even better with rewatches but um yeah, I just I just think, you know, this is if you want to look at it as, as a con, you know, it's stuff we've seen before. But um yeah, so like absolutely I would recommend the French Dispatch. I know a lot of people who listen to this show will have either already seen the French Dispatch or will want to see it because it's a Wes Anderson movie and nothing unites and nothing gets a film nerd going like a new Wes Anderson movie. Um but yeah, so I'm just I'm very happy with how this film turned out and I look forward to watching it many, many times and picking up on all new things that I didn't see the first time or the second time or the third time. Uh, so yes, it's a it's a box of chocolates that I can continue to go back and finding all new flavours with, which is just absolutely what I want in a Wes Anderson movie. At number 12... We have Last Night in Soho. Once again, Edgar Wright pops up. And as I said, this and the French Dispatch were a real uh, which which for which comes 13th and which comes number 12, which was uh, which really put ahead of the other. And I put this ahead of the French Dispatch because, as I said many times, uh, Wes Anderson in the French Dispatch is doing everything. Wes Anderson does everything that we know he does all of his style to just the most of it this in but with last night in Soho you have a director in Edgar Wright who has a distinct visual style who has a kind of movie that you would think he would make last night in Soho is not really that movie there are still a good few moments of that signature Edgar Wright style of editing uh but it's very much toned down from you know his Cornetto trilogy days and even something from say Baby Driver uh 
So I put this ahead of French Dispatch because I just liked seeing what felt like Edgar Wright starting to evolve more as a filmmaker. And that is just a little bit more interesting than seeing a director do his thing, even when it's a good thing, if you know what I mean. Uh, so yeah, because again, in a couple of years, maybe we'll look back at Last Night in Soho and maybe Edgar Wright went back to doing what he usually does. And we can look at it. Oh, that's a little oddity for when he tried something new. But if he continues to evolve, you can kind of look back at this as like, oh, this is where he started to change up his style. This is his first horror movie. Um, It's about a young girl who moves to London to be a fashion designer. Uh, uh, she's obsessed with the 60s. Uh, and suddenly... All of a sudden, uh, when she goes to sleep at night, she uh, envisions herself in the 60s in the body of this um, young uh, lounge singer played by uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who was great in this movie. She has such... That has that old-school glamour uh, screen presence... That really just lights up the movie without her even having to say all that much. Um, but yeah, so and then obviously things take a dark turn because, you know, she enjoys this. She enjoys being dreaming in the 60s uh, and being in this lifestyle and this culture that she loves. But then eventually she starts to see the dark side of it and it really turns into like this horror haunting kind of movie uh well obviously it does jake it's a horror movie but yeah and i just re i really dug it you know i know some people had issues with how the story played out and certain elements of it and you can tell that you know this was a director doing horror for the first time because some moments aren't really as smooth as you know if someone who would done who had handled multiple horror movies had done you know like if James Wan had made this film uh it would be different and certain elements that are a little bit hmm uh because it's Edgar Wright's first time would not be hmm because obviously uh, James Wan is a master of horror at this point in his career but yeah I, I, I still dug it. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge Thomas and Mackenzie stan, so obviously she's the lead in the movie. I'm going to love the movie. Uh, but yeah, so this was just a really fun time. Uh, it's, it's an interesting message. It's very much a cautionary tale of don't become so in love with the past. Don't romanticize the past. There was a danger in nostalgia because, you know, the past always has a side of it that we don't see until we go too far in. You know, uh, nothing is perfect, basically. And I just really dug this movie. It's gorgeous. It has some amazing use of lighting. Obviously, the cinematography is great. Edgar Wright knows exactly what he wanted with his use of neon in this movie. Uh, it has the final on-screen performance of uh, the late, great Dame Diana Rigg, and she bows out in immense style. Uh, you know, 
if you're into horror, I would definitely definitely say watch this. Um, we had a lot of good horror movies this year. Uh, there is a horror movie in the top ten. Uh, but I'd also give a quick shout out to Malignant, which was fucking bonkers. Uh, and I feel like, I feel like Last Night in Soho and Malignant are kind of an odd family relation to each other, like a distant cousin to each other, because there's a lot of, there's a, there's some crossover in terms of, you know, referencing and kind of uh, themes that date back to 70s Italian horror, sort of Gallo, Gallio or whatever. Uh, so, like, there's a little bit of stylistic uh, relation to both of them. And, obviously, both great. Check out Malignant. It's bonkers. Um, but, obviously, Last Night I Heard the better film. It's at my number 12. I can't wait till January to buy this on Blu-ray. Uh, and so, number 11, rounding out uh, the first half of the list. Oh, God, I'm about an hour or so into this and we're only halfway through. Um, uh, rounding off the list at number 11 is The Mitchells versus The Machines, which is, for my money, pound for pound, the best animated film of the year. It should win Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. Um, and it's another example of just the fact that anything that, um, Chris Lord and film, Phil Lord and Chris Miller touch turns to solid gold like if you look on paper this movie about a a family road trip that gets interrupted by the robot apocalypse that on paper that feel that sounds like a movie that's just kind of eh, you know even the title isn't um doesn't sort of uh, entice a lot of people like if you just said oh the Mitchells versus the Machines, like oh that that's kind of a stupid title, uh, uh just and also the fact that it's Sony and while Sony did make Spider Verse, it doesn't make up with the fact that Sony has also made a lot of sh- a lot of shit, uh the Emochi movie obviously. But um, yeah, so like this movie could have easily just been a nothing, but Lord and Miller managed to craft a beautiful story about. Uh, family love, family bond, and also managed to make it uh, one of the most visually distinctive animated films of the last decade. Beautifully animated, amazing use of 2D drawing and 3D effects. Um, it's vibrant, it's lively. It's maybe the best comedy of the year. Like, uh, like any time I just even think about the sequence in the mall with the massive Furbies... It gets me every time. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's a movie that snuck up on you. No one thought it would be as good as it was. It had no business being as good as it was. It's got a delicious villain performance from uh, Olivia Coleman vo- voicing an evil AI phone that uh ter- that has maybe one of the best sort of reasonings for being evil as any AI I've ever seen in a movie, because it's basically just like, what if your phone said, fuck this, I've had enough. And I love that uh, reasoning. Um, so yeah, so this is funny, it's charming, the animation is amazing, 
Uh, it's one of those movies that, you know, like I said with Encanto, people are going to watch it and enjoy it at a young age and then rewatch it later on and will enjoy it even more. This, while I said um, Encanto is a animated classic in the making, The Mitchells versus The Machines is already a classic and it's only been this year. I have, you know, this movie will have a lot of fans. Again, I, I think it's the best animated film overall uh, of the year because, you know, we, we know what Disney can do. We expect this out of, we expect greatness out of Disney. We expect greatness out of Pixar. We expect even more than greatness out of Pixar sometimes. Uh, we don't expect this out of Sony. So it's always amazing when Sony surprises us like this. And this was a massive surprise. Like how Spider-Verse was. This is... Overall, I think this is the best animated film of any kind to come out of America since Spider-Verse. And I do mean that as one of the highest forms of compliment I could give this movie. It's fantastic. Please go watch it. It's on Netflix. It's a shame it, it didn't get a theatrical release because I think it still would have made a good amount of money. Um, it's hilarious. Uh, everyone in the voice cast does brilliant work. It's a touching movie about family that just also happens to be one of the most fun robot apocalypse movies is, that I can think of. Uh, the Mitchells versus The Machines. It's a future classic uh, already. Uh, definitely check it out. Okay, so we move now on to the top 10 list. Um, uh, thank you for putting up with me so far. It's still really kind of odd doing an episode by myself just because, you know, I'm always great when I can bounce off someone, but when it's just me, it's a little different. It's a little weird. Uh, but let's get on with the top 10. Uh, at number 10, this is a little bit of a cheat, but also it's my list, so fuck off. Um, the Fear Street Trilogy is my number 10. Three movies, uh, Fear Street 1994, Fear, Fear Street 1978, and Fear Street 1666. Three movies in a trilogy, all released on Netflix one week after the other. So within a three-week period, you have this entire trilogy to watch. Um... And all of these movies are awesome. And then when you put them together, you get this fantastic full package. Three slasher films, all with their distinct style to fit their time period. Uh, each of them is a loving celebration of an era of American horror. You know, in 1994, it's very much a send up of Scream. There's a lot more, it's a lot sassier, you know, it's got that 90s sensibility to it. Um, you know, the characters are a bit edgier, there's a bit more meta and whatnot. In 19, uh, Fear Street 1978, it's an old-fashioned summer camp slasher film, a lot more innocent. You know, it's got all the usual kind of things you'd see in there, but it's all done really well. And then 1666, it's very... It's an even different tonal shift from that. Uh, you know, celebrating that kind of you know, Salem witch trials era of horror storytelling. Uh, yeah, and so and what it manages to do, despite the fact that all of them have their different styles and different tones and approaches, you know, sense of humour, way of doing things, 
they all still feel like they're within the same world. And that's impressive. Uh, big, big, big shout out to Lee Janet, the director who managed to take this uh, trilogy and craft such a well-told story, despite the fact that it pa it spans decades. It's got a lot of characters. It's got some fodder. It's got a really cool lore. You know, like the world building and the lore of this trilogy is fantastic. It's really cool. You know, sometimes lore can kind of muddy up a story because you're like, oh, the lore is really cool, but the story isn't. So you're more interested in the world than you are in the characters. But the thing that this movie does is it makes its characters very easy to like. Uh, this whole trilogy just revolves around one lesbian couple and their and just their determination to be a lesbian couple in the 90s and just have a good time and i really dig that and also the slasher genre is one of the most easily dismissive genres within horror because again it's it's cheap it can be so it has a history of being schlocky franchisey type things you know outside of you know, Scream, I don't think there's been really a slasher film that has, like, a huge amount of, like, social commentary. And maybe, maybe Halloween and maybe the first one or two. But even then, like, even they kind of just descend into schlock. But, um, yeah, no, Fear Street manages to be a slasher film that has genuine social commentary about class divide, disparity, but between upper class and lower class the social uh, effects of uh class divide and kind of the truth about why these class divides tend to form you know and sometimes when it's like it can seem like the world can be against certain kinds of people sometimes in reality it's just the pettiest of things why that happens um but yeah so like i love this this was just, this was one of my favourite things in all of horror this year. Absolutely would recommend it. They're all, all three of them are on Netflix right now. When you binge all of them one by one by one, it's this fantastic sort of six hours or so saga that just really delivers on kills, on character, on messaging and theme. It's just a, it's just a knockout. Uh, and it's my number 10. And number 9, we have Limbo. I don't think many of you would have actually heard of the movie Limbo. It's from director Ben Sharrock. And it's about a Syrian refugee who is awaiting uh, news on whether his asylum claim has been uh, accepted. But he's in asylum, living in, living on an island, waiting out on an island in the north of Scotland, uh, it's cold, it's wet, it's miserable, it's, it's Scotland, um, and yeah, and he's just kind of struggling to put his life back together after, you know, his family's been torn apart by the war in Syria, you know, he, he carries this mu Syrian musical instrument around with him all the time, but he can't play it because, you know, there's so many sort of good memories held within that that are just feel weird and different now because of what happened you know this is a movie about 
rediscovering your will to live, your reason for living, rediscovering the things that you love in life that can be kind of taken from you for a while when life gets bad. You know, like it's a really heartfelt little movie um, about, you know, that the bonds of community as these different people sort of rally around one another. Um, it has a quirky, has a little bit of a quirky sensibility to it. A little bit of Wes Anderson-y, but like not Wes Anderson. So like hints of it, but still very much the director's film. Um, it's got one of the best supporting performances of the year from the actor, I'm probably going to butcher his name, Vikash Bai, who plays um, the lead character's uh, roommate and best friend, uh, who's an Afghan man with a past of his own, who loves Freddie Mercury and gets a pet chicken. He's He's delightful and he's the funniest thing in the movie, bar the two sort of bumbling um asylum were asylum committee workers who are kind of teaching all these refugees about sort of customs in the west you know like how to like approach how to approach females on like nights out but like be respectful of it and just learning english and learning how to just do job interviews and whatnot and i love that element of it it's not in it for a huge amount but you know this is a movie that, you know, is just knows what it wants to be. And as always, I love when a movie does that. And it's a movie that uh, made me emotional. It was uh, it was very heartfelt. It broke your heart and then put it back together. It was a it was one of those movies that like exposes the flaws within like the asylum system. Uh, but it doesn't openly criticize it. It just shows what happens, you know? It just shows the reality and by that and as a result it exposes the reality. Um Limbo, it's a great film. Check it out on movie. Uh at number eight, this is some real weird, surreal shit. It's Annette, uh, which is from uh, famed French director Leo Leo Scarex, I believe that's how it's pronounced. And it's got music by Sparks. See, those guys are back again. And it's basically this bizarre, surrealist rock opera about uh, a doomed romance between a controversial, dark stand-up comedian played by Adam Driver in the performance of his career, as far as I'm concerned. And Marion Cotillard, who plays this beloved Oscar singer, uh, opera singer, sorry. And basically, they have a kid together, and that kid is a marionette doll who has this, who, uh, after a tragedy, develops this beautiful singing voice. Um, like I said, it's very surreal. I don't want to give away spoilers, but it's one of those movies that, like, confuses you but at the same time gives you unbelievable levels of anxiety uh you know it's you know obviously the daughter being a puppet is a metaphor for the daughter's uh the, the child's place as often a pawn in an unraveling marriage um so yeah so it's a film that wears its weirdness on its shoulder like a badge of honor um 
It's a movie that is so unbelievably uncompromising that I can't help but love it because it is just, it's it's practically stubborn in itself with how just absolutely I do, you know, the, the people who made this film did not care about fitting in, about the movie uh, connecting with audiences. It just wanted to be what it wanted to be. This is a movie that begins with a musical sequence where literally all of the main cast members turn up uh, with like the musical, you know, the, the, the composers and the director and whatnot, and they all walk through the streets and just start singing, shall we start at the beginning of the movie? You know, like it's, it's weird and I, and I really like it. It's not for everyone. It is not going to be a movie for everyone. It's not going to be a crowd pleaser some people are going to watch it and hate it. Some people are going to watch it and be confused. Too confused to sort of figure out if they liked it or if they hated it. Some people will love it. I'm, that, that's the camp I'm in. But again, this is not for everyone. But if you think a movie featuring a singing marionette doll, you know, meta songs and musical numbers and a scene where Adam Driver sings while eating out Marion Cotillard, then maybe you should give this movie a watch. Um, what do we got next on the list? We have Luca. Yes, I did say that uh, The Mitchells versus The Machines was the best animated film of the year, but it's not my favourite animated film of the year. That would be Pixar's Luca. Now, I know, I know. Pixar, you know, gets so many accolades and so many sort of well wishes and praise and whatnot. And obviously sometimes it's deserved, sometimes maybe not as much as other animated films. But again, while this is not as good of an overall film as uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines, it doesn't take the risks that Mitchells and Machines did. It doesn't have the vibrant, unique different uh, animated style of that this is very much you know pure Pixar you know colorful and realistic looking and you know it's it's the animation that we love that they do but it's you know it's it's within their wheelhouse it's nothing groundbreaking or new or different um but yeah this is my favorite because it just hit me in the feels more than any other animated film did this year it's this beautiful coming-of-age tale of two sea creatures uh, living on the surface world in the Italian Riviera uh, for, one su- for a summer discovering friendship and uh, what they want in life. And, you know, it's, it's just this beautiful story of friendship. And, you know, if you want to look at it, you know, in a certain way, this can be, this can be taken as a story of, you know, queer ad- adolescence because they do kind of play this as like gay but also they don't explicitly say it so obviously you can see it that way but also if you want to see it in a different way they're like yes you can you can this movie can be taken in different directions by different people you know if you want to see this as a queer adolescence movie you can do that if you want to see this just as a more uh normal coming of age story about two friends that that as well you can look at it that way so 
And all the while, it never queerbaits. It doesn't feel like queerbaiting for the sense of, oh, oh, see, well, maybe we'll get people to watch this thinking it's this, but then we'll tell them, oh, it's not. You know, I think Frozen 2 would have been a good case of uh, them queerbaiting and it really coming across uh, coming across as queerbaiting. But, um, yeah, no, I just love this. You know, it's simple, it's small, it's Pixar doing a Studio Ghibli film in the best kind of way. I know some people weren't crazy about it because they felt it was a bit slight, it was a bit... Yo, it was a bit small potatoes after films like Coco and Soul and Inside Out in recent enough years. You know, it's not Pixar giving us an existential mindfuck that uh, deliberately torpedoes our, uh, our heartstrings and feels and whatnot. And that's okay. Not every film that Pixar does has to make you utterly weep it doesn't have to make you question your existence in the world it doesn't have to make you question if your emotions are literally anthropomorphic things like beings in your head or you know what is a soul basically it's just two sea creatures having a hot boy summer on the italian riviera eating delicious looking animated pasta and having a good time this is, movie is like a warm blanket, you know. It's a warm blanket that I can wrap around me. I can feel the warmth. I, I, you know, I can watch and just look at the surroundings, this gorgeous Italian town. There's just so much, via, so much of this movie that is just like, I love the world. I love the setting. I like the. I really love the characters. It's just, this is a world that I can just watch happen around this movie and enjoy. You know, this is just a world I want to escape into, and that's why it's the, why it's higher than Mitchell's versus the Machines, and why it's my favorite animated film of the year, because while, it's not as good of a film as Mitchell's versus the Machines. It's a movie that I'd sooner, you know, crawl, you know, swim back to. Uh, uh, at number six, number six, we have The Green Knight. Oh, this movie, this movie is some artsy weird and I love me some artsy weird sometimes. This feels like a movie that normally I'd be a bit on the fence about. It's a dark fantasy epic about... It's a it's a telling of the story of the Green Knight, which was a medieval legend about a magical tree like warrior who who got a a a well known prince or whatever to uh, engage in a wager that made the made the prince uh, quest uh, have to face his mortality. Um, it's got Dev Patel bossing it to a performance. It's a gorgeous movie. It's a movie that you would need to watch a few times to fully understand because it's a movie that has so many potential themes. It's like The Shining where like you look at it and you can take it from so many things. It can be a metaphor for this. It can be a parallel for that. It can be an allegory for this. Yeah, the Green Knight can be that. It can be a story about mortality. It can be a story about honor, about what uh, 
what actual bravery is, the foolishness of like what what we think bravery is versus what it actually is, what makes a knight, what is honor. You know, it can be a story of man versus nature. It can be a story about like, you know, time coming for all of us. It can be a story about um uh false idols and whatnot. It just there's a lot this story can be about. And it's one of those films where I was like, I can, I can rewatch it and I can see, I can look at it as that thing and I can kind of see why that can be the way, can be seen the way it is. Um, what else is great about this movie? Um, the performances are all great. The special effects are amazing. This has some of the best special effects of a movie that did not take place on Arrakis this year. Um, it's A24 doing a fantasy movie and what else do I need to say about that? The Green Knight is, again, I'm surprised I didn't hate this movie, let alone like it as much as I did to put it in my number six. But it's a movie that I will just be coming back to a lot in the future just to see if I can see a new angle on it. You know, because as it is, it's a it's a tremendous story about a knight having to a wannabe knight having to learn, you know, he is not all he's cracked up to be. It's a story of human folly and whatnot. I I just really I just really dug this movie. It has that epic feeling that you want from a fantasy film, but it feels totally different to any other kind of fantasy film I've ever seen. It's that kind of de- low fantasy where it's like, this is this is very much what I imagine it would be like at this time period in history. But it has fantasy elements in it later on that are just like, whoa, very kind of out of this world. But the fact that it somehow manages to blend together with the sort of down-to-earth feeling of everything else is just so impressive. I, I just really dug this movie. Green Knight is number six. Um, at number five, we have the best Irish film of the year, Redemption of a Rogue, which was the best, the best, best way I could describe it is if someone, if there was a love child of a Coen Brothers movie and a, as and a Michael McDonough film, a Martin McDonough film, uh, Redemption of a Rogue would be that love child. It is a, uh, bizarre, but, um, hilarious darkly hilarious biblical allegory it's basically a biblical plague movie but set in a small town in county cavan uh it's got tremendous performances the comedy is great it has like proper you know dark-hearted humor you know like has one of the funniest scenes i have ever seen some of the funniest things i've ever seen in a movie and it's just the small things it's the little lines barely heard just before the end it cuts that kind of last line of a line of a scene kind of humor uh if you if you see the movie you'll know what i mean um i just love the story i love how bizarre it can be you know it deals with a lot of heavy themes and it has a lot of very weird imagery yeah, it was one of those movies that kind of 
just rides the t perfectly balances between being artistic and and uh the right kind of weird and uh that sort of sense of it's a little pretentious a little bit wants to be too much but it just manages to to ride that line perfectly in between where you get a movie that's like yep it's artsy it's weird it's different but I can still understand what's happening. It's funny. I like these characters. It's not getting too far up its own ass. But it is getting within close enough to its ass to get that smell of it a little bit. But not too pongy. I have no idea what happened to that analogy. I swear to God. Uh, but Redemption of Rogue is the best Irish film of the year. I would really highly recommend it. It's just a great dark comedy with a lot of biblical overtones. I look forward to uh, re-watching it in the future. Uh, number four is a movie that at one point this year I thought would have been my number one, to be honest. Uh, and that's In the Heights, my favourite musical in a year of really good musicals. The only, the, literally, the only bad musical we had this year was um, Dear Evan Hansen. You'll be hearing about that next week. But um, yeah, In the Heights, this beautiful celebration of uh, a modern day America set in the Washington Heights district of New York, um, vibrant, overflowing with life and love and music. I said it before my uh, review on it, when I reviewed it uh, way back when, um, uh, it's the kind of movie it's like that uh the Hollywood that I want to work in has released, you know, like it's a movie, you know, that has a strong um how, how do I pronounce it, say this? This is the you know, it's a movie where, you know, there's no huge, huge stars in this movie. It's a musical featuring Latin you know uh Latin American actors and actresses uh made by you know a non-white director with a vast with a pretty much all non-white cast you know it's such a diverse movie full of life full of love it's the kind of movie that shows that hollywood is becoming a kind of hollywood that i want to work in someday you know like a like this movie you know has you know it, this does a lot for diversity, I think. And, you know, it's just like, this is a movie that just makes me happy about where movies are going in future. That stories like this can be told and can be given the scope that this movie has. Because this was based on a play by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And rather than like you see in a lot of sort of movie adaptations of Broadway shows, this isn't a movie adaptation of a Broadway production. This is a Broadway production that just happens to be fil being filmed and put on a movie screen. This is, the music in this movie is amazing. I love almost every song in this. I love the characters, the setting, the feeling of community, um, the fact that, you know, this movie has a lot of, this movie isn't afraid to be sad. This movie isn't afraid to wear its joyous heart on its sleeve. Um, as I said, I love the songs. I love the performances. Olga Meredith should 
be in consideration for Best Supporting Actress for her role in this movie. Um, the way the the way the musical sequences are do- sequences are done, shot, edited, it's just amazing. This movie is a triumph, uh, and I just loved everything about it. These top four, all of them could have been number one. Honestly, I love each and every one of them to bits. Uh, and that is the case with In the Heights. Uh, number three, a very late entrant. Some people maybe thought this would be higher, but Spider-Man No Way Home. Instantly jumping to the very, very uh, high end of my MCU rankings as soon as I saw it. This is a love letter to live-action Spider-Man in the same way that Spider-Verse was a love letter to the character of Spider-Man in general. This was one of the best Spider-Man films ever made. When you're up there with Spider-Man 2, which has such a deep, deep nostalgic love and, you know, feeling for me, and Spider-Verse, which is just a fucking phenomenal masterpiece of modern animation, uh you're in good company so like this movie managed to fit so much into it but managed to stay solely a spider-man film in the way that the russo brothers managed to be able to fit so much into captain america movies but still make the story captain america's you know tom holland finally comes into his own comes of age as spider-man this is the spider-man that we want to see in future uh, again, I'm not going to spoil what happens in this movie, but everyone in this movie gave it their all. I had goosebumps seeing these characters who, these villains who I loved as a kid, like Doc Ock and Green Goblin come back. Willem Dafoe, my fucking God, he is so good here. He is te- he's scarier here than he was 20 years ago as Green Goblin. When I went to see this film for the second time, I took my niece and nephew. My nephew was mad into Spider-Man. And when I was his age, he's six. Um, When I was his age, Green Goblin terrified me. Willem Dafoe terrified me as a Green Goblin. I look over to him uh, as he's watching the movie. And Gob- Green Goblin is being terrifying. And the look on his face, the sense of fear... It's absolutely the same look that I had on my face as a kid. And that got me in a way that, you know, I wasn't expecting. And for that alone, this movie is just a phenomenal. I love this movie just for that. That, you know, it allowed me to have that sort of full circle moment in a sense. But uh, yeah, this movie is just... This movie gets why I love Spider-Man as a character it's a great movie. It's everything that's good about the character. Um, I mean, I could just gush for ages. What it does, what it allows previously underserved villains and characters to get from this movie. This movie gives out redemptions like Oprah gives out cars. Uh, so much about this movie that I love. I can't wait to see it again. Um, 
it's one of the best live action Spider movies ever made, if not potentially the best. It sets so many things up. It understands the character so well. It's just a beautifully well told Spider Man story that, uh, was that ran the risk of being too much, but was just the right amount of everything, and I, freaking adored it. Uh, number two. It's Dune. Dune, which was a movie that I was so hyped for, I was so ready for. And what it gave me was an unbelievable cinematic experience. This movie showed us why cinema cannot die. Why going to see a movie in a cinema should not should not uh fade slowly into the night uh without a fight uh and it just Denis Villeneuve my god man what a filmmaker this guy took a piece of literature that most people thought was unfilmable and managed to make with patience with his just incredible eye for epic science fiction a the first part of what could potentially be one of the great uh, modern movie sagas uh you know all the performances are phenomenal it's i would say it is probably the best directed film of the year because just, just so the sense of scale that he gives the fact that you know Christopher Nolan at this point in time is kind of at that period in his career where like he's making movies for himself primarily and then for the audience secondarily this movie manages to be what Denis Villeneuve wanted wants the film to be uh but also he never abandons the audience and what they need you know like there's so like Dune is a thick thick heavy book it's dense it's ridiculously dense this lore is dense there's so much to introduce here and he always and he, he nails introducing it because he gives us the as much information as we need in that moment and just goes from there you know like it's just so it's it's a triumph on so many levels from directing to acting to storytelling to writing to production design to special effects to the cinematography which is just to die for there is so many incredible things going on on screen it's a movie that this film felt like a pilgrimage to the cinema this made going to the cinema feel like a pilgrimage and i am so so happy that we got it in a year where the cinematic experience has in in a time when yeah the cinematic experience is changing you know and this is just a reminder that while the experience can change it should not be allowed to fade out like the experience needs to continue even if it's different to how it once was dune I don't want to say Dune saved cinema, but like it is 
it is a it is one of the closest things to a savior that we've had in a while and i'm so glad it got a sequel you know audiences came through on this and i'm just so happy and nothing few things represent my optimism for the future of mainstream cinema than dune because this is an epic sci-fi fantasy you know right up my alley that can potentially not always sell well and we have we have a sequel now coming this is this is a hit you know dune is a hit and that's a miracle as far as I'm concerned and I'm happy about it and I'm optimistic about the future and this movie is part of the reason why but it's not my number one what is my number one you may ask it's a movie from way way back in January it's a movie that I saw not even in a cinema I saw it on my laptop way way back when in January when we were still in lockdown and it's a movie and I don't I don't I, I don't always do this Whenever I see a great movie, I'll text a few people, you should go and see that movie. You know, I'll Snapchat them. This, I legitimately picked up my phone. I rang my friends who I know this movie would be for them. I knew it would be up their alley as much as it's up my alley. I rang them. And these are people you know. I, I've rung, these are people who have been guests on this show before. I rang them up and it was like... Guys, you need to watch this movie immediately. It is amazing and you will love it. That movie is Psycho Gorman. Yes, in a fill in a year where we had epic Spider-Man adventures and out and Dune and James Bond and you know weird ass, you know, surrealist operas and toe-tapping musicals and Pixar and Mitchells vs. the Machines and so many great movies. The movie that I loved the most was a Shudder exclusive, batshit mental, 80s style, Power Rangers meets Hellraiser meets balls-to-the-wall science fiction sci-fi channel nonsense, violence, practical effects beauty nirvana that is psycho gorman if none of you have heard of this movie where have you been what are you doing what search it immediately because it's the best kind of genre cinema it is yes i i went on about how dune made me optimistic for the future of cinema but Psycho Gorman just cut to what I want the most in movies and what I resonate with. Psycho Gorman is a weirdo's passion project. And for me, I love that so much. That this is just a guy who's weird, who made a movie that's weird. And it's brilliant. It's this celebration of practical effects of old school science fiction storytelling with a dark hilarious twist to it this is a story about a murderous psychotic alien who learns the power of love 
but it doesn't not but it doesn't like undo the fact that he's a murderous psychopathic alien. I love it. I, I just so much about this movie. It's irreverent as fuck. It's wild, it's ambitious, but it's small and it just it's it's a movie where it's like I feel like I am on the ground floor of a cult classic and it's magical to feel that way. It is fucking magic. I love this movie so much. It's from director Stephen Kostansky. Fair balls to you, mate. You made a you made a masterpiece of throwback cinema, niche, you know, wild sci-fi with out of this world lore, you know. A film where a murderous psychopathic alien is twinned with a psychopathic young girl who is who and it's always like who's the bigger monster the murderous psychopathic alien monster or the little girl who is crazy and kind of evil and yeah like it's a weird movie Again, it's a movie that might not be for everyone, but is the best. But it's it's just it's gory and practical effects, man. Oh my god, it's so cool. It's this movie is just cool and weird, and it's the kind of movie I want to see get made. It's risky. It's not. It's not a movie that a mainstream studio would really sign off on. It's a movie where, you know what, I'm glad we have streaming services because weird ass shit like this gets made and it's beautiful and I love it, I love it. I could I could talk for so long about this movie but I'm not because we're almost running up on two hours now and so I shall leave it at that. So my number one movie of 2021 is, is PG Psycho Gorman uh, and thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for all the support throughout the year. It's been a great year for me. It's been a big year, a lot of big life changes. I started a podcast. I got fans. Um, I got support and that support is immeasurable. I love each and every single one of you guys. Um, whether you're listening here on Anchor or on Spotify or google podcast or wherever you get your fine fine podcasts i would like to thank you for listening throughout the year uh i look forward to having many 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 more fun times with you in 2022 uh i hope you enjoyed this list if you want to read more about what i forgot to say about these movies go on to my instagram jake kelly 1997 where you'll find the list versions of these that I will have uh, finished typing up when I publish this uh, episode later tonight. Um, until then, uh, thank you. Enjoy 2022. I shall see you guys there. And thank you for just, thank you for just being awesome. Thank you so much.